Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints. Hi everyone and welcome to Quite the Thing Media's Quite the Interview. My name is Andy and I'm very excited to welcome with me a former Playboy Centrefold and Covered Girl, a member of the Screen Actors Guild, successful businesswoman, member of the Million Dollar Roundtable and a whole load of other accolades I won't mention. We'll probably get to them during the interview. I'd like to welcome Deborah Driggs to the podcast. Welcome Deborah. how are you? Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's great to speak to you. And of course, when I was sent over, look, um, do you want to speak to Deborah Driggs and former Playboy cover girl? It's like, yep, great. And you see the cover. But then when you dig into your bio, you've had a fascinating life, let alone just Playboy was just one thing that you've done. So we're going to cover, <laughs> yeah, we're going to cover that. We, I would hope I've done a lot more since I'm 57 now. I'm sh- I've worn a lot of hats. Do you know what you 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 have? You've done a lot, and I'm yeah. sure you've still got a lot more to do. But it looks yeah. of it as well. Um, but listen, we're going to get to discussing Playboy and all that entailed because I've got a lot of questions about how that comes about and what happens and what what it was like. I'm sure it was a fascinating time. But before we get to that, I want to know a little bit about your childhood. Um, you had a dream of being an ice skater at the Olympics. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, I. Um... I put skates on when I was five. I was invited to a birthday party and it was an ice skating birthday party in Harbor City, California. And I just remember I I got those rental skates. I put them on. I stepped on the ice and I was home. I, I just loved everything about it and went home that night and begged and begged for ice skating lessons. And I took group lessons and Progressed really fast through that and then begged and begged for private lessons and had private lessons, you know, a few times a week. And that led to skating every day. And then it led to getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning and skating before school and skating after school. So it became my life and it was my goal. You know, I aspired to go to the Olympics. Also, back then, you know, we had the ice follies, the ice capades holiday on ice. I mean, there were so many ice shows that if you didn't make it to the Olympics, you could be in an ice show, you know? And so that was also something that intrigued me as well. So yeah, ice skating was my life. It's all, it's what I really loved doing. And, and I had purpose. That was the first time in my life that I understood, you know, what having a purpose is. What happened that the you never managed to realize the dream? Now, I mean, it's all very well being a good ice skater, but to reach that Olympic level, that is so few people get to do that. Um, I mean, you were married to a former, former Olympian, and we'll come to that, but what happened that you never quite managed to take the ice skating to the level you wanted to? Well, you know, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money, so my mom was working full-time, and all of her money went towards my ice skating. And it was an expensive sport, really expensive. And I, I was aware of that. You know, I knew that we were struggling for me to skate. I was aware of that. And so when my parents got divorced, I was probably 13, 14 years old. And, and 
their marriage was coming to an end. And when that happened, there was no money left for me to skate. And so it was kind of a double whammy. It was like the death of my parents' marriage and the death of ice skating. And, you know, it sounds dramatic, but that's how it felt. It, It felt that way. It just felt like the end of a chapter in my life and that chapter, it's like anything, you know, when you do something, I had been doing it for so long and it was almost like I lost a limb or I lost my best friend, you know, and it was really, really hard that I remember that year really well because I just, you know, when you, you when your purpose disappears or it stops it's, it's really saddening. And I was really sad and, and just now what, you know, and I was only 14 and I was having that feeling, you know, most people don't really get that till later. And I was having this complete sad breakdown at 14 and I'm getting ready to go to high school. And it was just not a good time at all. Now, ice skating uh, was a lot of work for you. Uh, you put in a lot of hours before school, after school to train and practice and, and become really good. And like you say, that that never quite happened. But that work ethic and hard work seems to have carried on with you through your life. Was your modeling career directly after your ice skating kind of went away? Had you already done any modeling when you were younger? Or is that something that came a little bit later after school? No, that came later. That came later. I went to high school and because I was an ice skater and I had and I had been training on the weekends, I'd been taking ballet to go hand in hand with the ice skating. So I had some dance background and in high school I found dance and so I started dancing and and being a part of of the dance team and, and the dance club. I, I don't remember what it was called in high school, but I was a part of that. And then I tried out for cheerleading and I became a cheerleader. And so that just seemed like the natural thing to do, you know, you know, just being a part of something. I just needed to be a part of something after having the ice skating go away. Um, modeling came in 1983. I went to Japan to dance And while I was in Japan, I was approached by an agency and they asked me if I would do this modeling print job. And at first I thought, well, I don't know, you know, maybe this is shady. And I said, well, what's it for? And they said, we're going to put you in a poodle skirt and have you dance around because they saw me dancing. And so I went to the set the next day and sure enough, it was a full on set and they had me in a poodle skirt and gloves and they put a black wig on me. And they had me dancing around and they just said, just stand here and do your dancing and we're going to, and they shot photos and I had a blast. It was so fun. And so while I was in Japan, I, I asked them, I said, could I do this for other people? You know, could I get an agent or how do I do this? And so because they enjoyed working with me, they helped me get an agent in Japan. And I started doing print work and commercials before I left Japan when I came back to the U.S., I had a few little, you know, tear sheets, nothing big, but but that kind of modeling, I guess you would call it com- commercial print modeling. And so I came back to the U.S. and I told everybody that I was going to model. And in their mind, 
they were thinking like high fashion. And so they were gently trying to tell me, you know, you're, you're not tall enough to be a model. You're not this, you're not that, you know, how many people make it one in a million make it. And, you know, and I got all the reasons why I should not, and I should get a job with benefits, you know? (laughs) And so thank God I didn't listen because I ended up having a good career. What was your goal with I was going to say, what was your goal with modeling? Because you, I mean, your goal when you when you're younger, you want to be an ice skater, and you've got that dream of the Olympics. To be honest, did you with have you, anything in mind? No, I hadn't. I was flying by the seat of my pants. I really, I didn't know. I didn't know where it was going to lead me. I didn't know if I was going to build a career out of it. I was only 21 years old when I came back from Japan. I turned 21 in Japan, and so, but I looked like a baby. You know, when I was 21, I looked. 17. I didn't look my age at all. And so I came back. You and- still don't look your age. Thank you. I try very hard. You know, I say it's on all my stuff. Aging gracefully is a full-time job. It is. Oh my God. It's so much internal work really. But anyway, so, you know, when I, when I, I think I didn't have a goal in mind, but as I started going down the path and, and, and things were coming, were falling into line. I got an agent. I started doing commercials. I, I got an agent. I started doing print work, mostly catalog, exactly what I thought I would be doing. And and then I decided I wanted to do acting. And so I was one of those people because I didn't have anybody in the business. I didn't have any connections or I didn't, I didn't know anybody in L.A. So... Everything I did was a hustle. So I remember I would, back then, you they had things like drama log. And they had these papers that you could get and you could go through and you could, you could show up at auditions. And that's what I did. I just showed up everywhere. <laughs> and people would be like, well, you're not right for this. But I just take my chance anyway and just show up. And, and that's what I did, you know, in 1984, five and six, I just showed up. I got on the set. Sometimes people would say, well, well, you're not right for this, but do you want to be an extra? And I'd say, sure. And I'd make $150 a day just showing up to be an extra. And then I would get to try to talk to the director or the producer, try to get my SAG card. And, you know, you, I just, I was a hustle. I, I didn't know anybody. So I didn't have, I didn't have any trepidation. I didn't have anything that was holding me back, so to speak. I didn't have, um, it's almost like it's better that I didn't know what I didn't know because I just hustled and showed up and, and, you know, put myself in front of people and, and was constantly trying to figure out how I was going to get the next job. And so in 1987, I think I got a job on a cable show called the fashion channel. And this was before QVC or home shopping network. It was a channel that was selling clothes 24 hours a day. And so I'd go in and I was the model on the show and it was a regular job. And I went every day and worked four to five hours on that show because they'd switch out the models. And so that was a fun gig, you know, it was a regular paying job. And so the more I did stuff like that, the more I was getting momentum. And, and then I would, and then I started getting swimsuit campaigns and, and getting 
better jobs. And then I was flown to Cabo for a, a bikini photo shoot. And so just everything was just working out. And so Playboy didn't come around until 1989. And it wasn't anything that was on my radar. I <clears throat> didn't think of it as, you know, a, a landing spot for me at all. I just, you know, I, I knew of Playboy, but I didn't really know about it or, or, you know, if I wanted to do it or, so when my agent called me and said, Playboy's coming out with a new book and they want you to come in to audition for the cover. I even said to my agent, well, is there nudity involved? Cause that's how I thought of Playboy. She said, I don't think so. It's for the cover. So I went to the audition. It was at the famous building on sunset and showed up, they handed me a robe and told me to take everything off and they were going to shoot some Polaroids. And I thought, wait a second, <laughs> you know, yeah. I just got here. Let's have some coffee and talk before, you know, I stripped down. And, um, so I didn't take everything off. I left my undergarments on, came out to do the Polaroid and the photographer was like, I need to see your body. And I said, well, this, this is it. You know, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the cover. And he said, well, everything we do has nudity. Now, back in 1989, I have to take people back because they're like, maybe not sure what I'm talking about, but it was a different time. They were looking for birthmarks. They were looking for tattoos. They were looking for scars, piercings. You know, it was a different time. There wasn't a lot of airbrushing in 1989. They they were really looking at your canvas and what they were working with. And so I left that audition and I and I thought to myself, I'm not going to get that because it just wasn't it didn't feel like usually I left an audition I knew whether or not I had a chance and this one I just left thinking they're never going to hire me. And Did I you want it? After you had that experience, did you still want it when they'd asked you to do like the the nude piece? And well, I you know I didn't know I didn't I it was just an audition for the cover of a magazine, so I didn't have any attachment to it. I I left thinking I'm not going to get it because I didn't take everything off and and I just didn't feel. Usually when I left an audition, I would feel, I'd have a sense of, oh, I got that, or I didn't get that. And this one, I was like, uh, I don't think so. So when I got home and got a message that they wanted to test me to be a centerfold, I was like, I think you're confusing me with another girl. And they were, they were like, no, we want you. And I was like, really? So I called my agent and she's like, yeah, it's true. They want to test you to be a centerfold. And I was like, a centerfold, really? I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And so I asked some people in my life at the time what they thought. And uh, everything, I got all positive feedback. Everybody said, oh, my God, you have to do it. Now, the other thing is Playboy was the number one magazine in the world in 1989. If you wanted to read the magazine, you had to buy it. You had to go out and buy it or you had a subscription. It, you couldn't see it online. There was no internet. Yeah. So is it also that was what was very different too. So so after much thought I thought okay, why not? Why not? Why not be a part of this 
history of Playboy, and I didn't really know much about it. But when I started to really learn about Hef and his vision and what the magazine, how it started and everything, I was really intrigued. And so I did my test. And next thing I knew, I was the centerfold for, I got chosen to be March 1990. And then they flew me to Chicago and I shot a cover for April 1990. So it was quite a whirlwind. And I can remember being in the makeup chair while I was shooting and the makeup artist telling me that, you know, Deb, over a thousand, Playboy gets over a thousand submissions a day from girls all around the world that are just trying to get into the magazine. And it really hit me that, you know, this opportunity was really presented to me on a silver platter and that I should be really grateful. You know, it it hit me like it was very surreal that I thought, wow, how lucky am I that I just ended up on an audition, walking into the building and, and then the rest is history. And it's, it's, you know, to this day, I'm always like, wow, isn't that crazy how that happened? Did you get to meet many of the other girls when you're on those shoots or is it just you with the crew? Uh, it's just me with the crew, but I did meet, you know, obviously I've met quite a few of the girls and and we would meet at the mansion every Sunday. It was, I think, movie night or dinner night up at the mansion. And so Hef would always have a buffet out and all the girls went up and hung out and, and he loved that. He loved having the girls up for dinner every Sunday night. So, you know, we would all meet at the mansion and that was a great time to get to know everybody. And then a lot of the promotion, you know, back then too, we did a lot of traveling and promotions. And so I would travel with a lot of the girls and get to know them that way as well. So, yeah. There's, there's so many so many legends about Hugh Hefner, obviously, and he passed away a, a while ago, but the man lived a million lifetimes in, in his. Like, what was the man like at himself when you meet him? Amazing. Just amazing. He was very wickedly smart. You know, he had a he had just genius, genius man. But he was quietly funny. So, you know, he would, he would, he was really always listening and observing. And then he would say things that were quietly funny. And, you know, I think he just got a kick out of everything that was going on. You could just tell, like he just, I'd catch him every once in a while, just looking around. Like I remember being up there on an Easter Sunday. He always had Easter Sunday at the mansion and had the bunnies and the big egg hunts and, and the, and we were all allowed to bring our kids, you know, as we were having kids. And, and so it, it was a beautiful day. And I just remember looking over at him and this was probably God, 10, 12 years ago. So it was when he was, he was getting older. And I just remember him sitting there and looking around and you could tell that he was really proud of what he had built, you know, like he, he, he enjoyed every moment that was happening and what was going on around him and the people that would come and show up and everybody would go to the mansion. I mean, it was a who's who, you know. He built so an empire and he built it an certainly empire, had an effect yeah. that's go- we're still seeing the effects. Now, what was the atmosphere like in the 90s around the mansion? Because I think we've all got an idea that you see it's always a sunny day, loads of beautiful women around the pool, you know, some people being entertained. 
what was it always a party atmosphere was there a lot of jealousy uh, you know was it easy to get on with people no it was it was it was it wasn't always a party atmosphere but there was always beautiful girls at the mansion always you know and either they were laying you know bathing and by the pool and and what have you but yeah no it was it was a beautiful atmosphere the parties were amazing i mean they were done really well he had three or four major parties a year he had a halloween party a new year's eve party the midsummer night and then if there was a sporting event he'd probably you know do something for that but yeah there was always something going on and he loved having all the women up there, obviously, you know. Who did you get to meet celebrity-wise that, that was Everybody. visiting? or Everybody. I met, you name somebody, and I met them at the mansion. I mean, it, like I said, it was a who's who. I, you know, I'm G- George Clooney, Ben Affleck, Scotty Bayo, um, lots of musicians, um, lots of comedians, I mean, those are just off the top of my head, but yeah, it was a who's who of of people at the mansion. And, and you say you got to go back as recently as 10, 12 years ago. Did you see a change over the years when you visited or was it always the same sort of vibe when you went there? Obviously, like you said, the always, 90s were very yeah. different to now. Yeah, no, it was always the same vibe, you know, it was, it was a really, you know, it was, it was the Playboy Mansion. That's what can I tell you? It was the Playboy Mansion. And it was like nothing you've ever seen. As a matter of fact, when I when I became a playmate, one of the promotional jobs that were available to us were to give tours of the mansion. So Hef really loved people to come and experience it. So he um different groups of people, different companies would come up and they'd get a tour of the mansion. And, and so I love doing that. I put myself at the top of the list for that job. I don't know why, but I just enjoyed giving tours because there was so much history there. They had two full-time zookeepers and a, a whole atrium of every bird you can think of. Um, just, I mean, I, it's unexplainable just how amazing it was and the property. What opportun- and- yeah, what you've said, that was one opportunity that came up was getting to do the tours. And that's something most people I don't think would even know was, was an option, obviously. What sort of other opportunities opened up for you once once you've done the centerfold? Um, obviously, you've seen here the rock videos. You were a video jockey for the Playboy channel. Were, was there like a new world of opportunity opened up or was it still more difficult than you thought to get additional work on top of that? No, I, it, it opened up a lot of doors because, you know, you're that, you're the girl of the month, you know? And for me, I had, I had a, a, a two month period because I was the centerfold and then I was on the cover. So I did the Oprah Winfrey show. I was the first VJ for the Playboys Hot Rocks. Um, and then I was getting called in for everything. If there was a meeting for something, I was getting called in for it. If there was some sort of promotion that they wanted for girls, I got called in for it. And and because I had already been acting and doing commercials, I kind of was at the top of the list. Like I would get the call because 
they knew that I was already acting and and I had an agent and and I was kind of experienced on going on auditions. So I would get calls all the time. Uh, then around 1992, you married Olympic gymnast Mitch Gaylord and went on to have three children. How did that change your career, getting married oh, it, and your aspirations? It, yeah, it changed it, you know, dramatically, obviously, because I, I made the decision to be a full-time mom. And, it, you know, it's it's not, you know, it, again, it was, I tried to do, if I got called to go in for something, I would do it. I, I remember right after I had Kevin, my first, I, I didn't gain a lot of weight during my pregnancy. So I remember it was like two weeks after, um, this is kind of a funny story, actually. At two weeks after I had Kevin, I got called in to audition for OJ Simpson was doing a workout video <laughs> and I got called in to audition for that. I just had a baby and I, I didn't do the, I don't think I did it. I don't think I got chosen for it. These are the things that I have a hard time remembering, but I just remember that it was like two weeks after, cause I remember saying who gets called in for a workout video two weeks after having a baby. And it was like, I did. And I went on that audition and, um, so yeah, I was, and I did a soap when Kevin was about three months old. I did General Hospital, took him to the set with me, you know, and and you know had him there while I was shooting. So you know, it got difficult after I had my third because I had three babies in three years. After I had my third, I was just tired. You know, I was like, it was too hard to keep up with with going on auditions and and having kids. And I'm lucky too, because, you know, my ex didn't have a traditional job either. And so we kind of worked as a team. If he had something, I was watching the kids. If I had something, he was watching the kids. So not that, to fast that, forward too much, but yeah, then after uh, you got divorced, uh, 2003, um, and you seem to have carved out a whole new life in the business world. Uh, and there's a list of accolades that you're, you've achieved and accomplishments, which is incredible. Um, finding success in global print sales then the insurance world talk to me about kind of what's going on then the last kind of 15 20 years almost that's yeah, a long time i know yeah, but yeah, yeah. Well, what's what, been your proudest what's moments? really what's really my proudest moment of all of that because it's always great you know it's almost like you know it's one of those things where you wake up and everybody sees oh look she's really successful but they don't see all the dark all the struggle, all the nights that I was awake crying, wondering how I was going to buy groceries, you know? And so you miss out on all that. So the things that I'm proudest of are not the things that you can see. They're the things that I know about, that I know. When I got up, pulled my boots back on and said, okay, we're going to walk through the mud one more day. You know, those are the things I'm proud of. Yeah, so I found myself at 40 years old divorced, no money. We didn't have a, we didn't have a lot of assets to split and we didn't, there was not this big divorce settlement. It was just, we signed a piece of paper and we went our separate ways. And so I'm divorced, three kids, no money. And now I have to work and I have to get a job. And I worked a lot of odd jobs until, you know, I landed in what I do now and I, and it's interesting that it took me so long to get to where I am now. And that's the kind of thing that I, 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 I look back now and it's funny, you know, when you're in this kind of panic 
mode. You can't see what may be obvious right in front of you because you're in panic. And so I, I try to teach people now to just sleep on it, relax, and try to get in a state of being open because when you're open, the possibilities are really around you. And so I didn't even see this right in front of me, but I had been referring business to the company that I work for now and a lot of business, like really, like I, I referred my company that I'm with now, one of their very, the first big deal they ever did was an $80 million deal. And it was referred through me. And so I didn't even think about calling them when I was scrambling and trying to figure out my life. And it wasn't until I started building up, you know, my, my life resume, my career resume. And I reached out and I said, Hey, you know, I refer a lot of business to you. Can I get, start getting a referral fee? And they literally stopped me and said, go get your license. This is what you should be doing. And it was like the light bulbs went off and I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Cause I just been handing over these referrals. <laughs> They're like, get in the game. So that's how I ended up. You know, it's like I, I, I literally struggled for about three or four years before I finally got to this place, which is so ironic, you know, isn't it ironic? You know, it's like it was right in front of me and I just wasn't even seeing it. And so that's, that's always interesting to me is what, what's in front of you that you're not even seeing. It's like if I said to you right now, look look around the room at everything that's red, and you look around your room right now, right? And you you see, oh, that's red, that's red. And then I go, okay, now tell me what was blue. And you can't, you're only telling me what's red. Cause that's so it's like you're what you're looking for is what you're gonna see. And I was not even thinking about that this would be a really good opportunity for me. And and then when it finally hit me, it, it was, it was, it changed my life because I had, you know, I, I had, I had relationships and that's what it's all about in sales is your relationships. And I had relationships and I had the desire and I, and I believed in what I was selling. And so that's where, that's how I got successful. But what I'm most proud of is the fact that I overcame such, such struggle and such darkness. And that is probably the thing to be most proud of because, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, it's like being on the cover of Playboy. The, I, if somebody would say, you must be so proud of that. No, it's really, it's the journey of getting there, right? That's great. You, you know, it's almost like, you know, if we say something like, God, if I just made a million dollars, everything would be great. Well, I can tell you from experience that that doesn't change anything. It's how we are in the present moments leading up to those big wins. And when they come, really appreciating them. Because you know how it is when you buy a car, it's really nice and shiny for the first week. And then all of a sudden, maybe just the first day. And then it's like, okay, next you're done with that car a year after driving it. That's why they have two, three-year leases. 
Now, what comes across in everything you say, Deborah, is is how hardworking you are in whatever you've done. You've put a lot of effort into things, and that doesn't seem to be stopping. Um, I'm right from <laughs> no. your website. Well, you've got your memoirs being published soon as well. Is that right? Yes. What can people yep. expect from that? It is a book where I am inspiring people to start over. To It's okay to start over. I just read something the other day that uh, people 45 and over, 80% of people 45 and over want to make a change. They want to start over and only 6% only ever do it. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And, you know, here I was, I was 40 and I had to start over and I get, I get it. I, I actually just wrote a whole blog about it because it's so important to me and it's what I teach because I did it. I had to do it. You know, and in there, in a way, I was kind of forced into that change and that growth. But when I read that statistic, I thought, wow, isn't that amazing that 80% of people really want to make a change? They want a new career, they want to go for it, but only 6% actually do it because it is really hard. It's uncomfortable. And I get that. So that's what the book is about. It's what I teach in my book. And I do it through my journey, my stories about. Yes, it is difficult. It is uncomfortable, but it's in that uncomfortable stuff that you sit in that the great stuff comes. And the longer you, if you can just stay with it, I listen, I, it, it doesn't stop by the way, I'm 57. I can tell you I am 57 and I feel like my life is just getting started again. And I'm changing now. I'm doing stuff that really took me a year. And so I get it. Like I could be in that statistic because it took me a year to go, you know what? You're a writer. You're a writer. If you're writing an hour a day, you're a writer and to change my mindset. And so now I am really putting myself out there on my website. If you go to my website, deboradriggs.com, I am blogging once a week and I'm writing. And I'm writing from a place of when things hit me from my experience, I just write about it and I put it out there because it's not doing me any good if I'm holding it inside. I'm not here to teach myself. I'm here to teach other people and I'm here to serve. So it's, it's, it's a gift. I've been given a gift of survival and of such a beautiful life that I want to share that it's okay to go through these really dark, dark, sad, lonely times and that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And through my stories, I hope that that's my gift to people is that I hope that they can see that it can happen to anybody, even a girl that's on the cover of Playboy or that was married to the Olympic gold medalist, whatever people look at as a success that I went through my dark times just like everybody else. So Deborah, on top of being a writer, blogger, successful businesswoman, mother, everything else you've done, uh, you've also got a podcast as well. That's uh, or you're on a podcast, haven't you, with a few other hosts? co-hosting. It was so fun because I was a guest on the show and, and, and then he reached out because they were looking for a co-host and the two guys are these really amazing uh, radio disc jockeys and they're fun and we just have fun. 
It's like every Sunday night, it's a live show. And it's, for me, it's one of those things again, where it's like, I'm just serving and I love it because I get to, I get to be funny and just show a different version of myself. And what was the name of that show? Roger the Wild Child. Awesome. And how else can any listeners follow you, get in touch, or just keep up to date with what you're doing? Well, Instagram is always a really fun place to follow my journey because I post photos from the 80s and 90s, and I post current photos. And there's kind of a journey, like if you don't know really anything about me, I I, I share. Like I wrote a book in the 90s, and I posted that uh, last week about I wrote about how that book was a total failure. (laughs) And so, you know, now I get to sit back and kind of have fun with, with my own life resume and my own journey. And then my website just launched, which is debradriggs.com. And so if you, if you follow me on there and connect with me there, I would love to hear your thoughts and your, when you read my blogs, if, if there's something that resonates with you and you want to share that with me, I would love, love to hear from you. And uh, it'll also update you when my book is going to be released. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the description of the podcast as well for Deborah's website, for our social medias as well. And Deborah, do you know what? It's been great speaking to you. And when the book comes out, we'll get you back on as well. I, I would love it. Absolutely. Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints.